Hello and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And we've got a packed show for you this evening. And we're going to start very quickly by jumping back to what was last week a breaking news story, which I touched on and then ran away from really quickly. Now, by the time last week's show actually hit the digital ether, we had learned that the submersible Titan was not going to be rescued, that there had never been any hope that the five people aboard would be rescued, and that we were dealing with a fatal issue. And if this was a different kind of show, we would be looking into all kinds of things that are raised by the Titan story. But the only aspect of the Titan story that is relevant to this show is the engineering side. And I think I'm not going to talk about that in this show. I think there's a, a bigger issue that needs proper discussion raised by this about the nature of regulation versus the need for innovation and what risks are good risks and what risks are not worth taking. There is a very fine line between boldly pushing forwards and being irresponsible. Now, it's not necessarily for me to say what risks people are allowed to take. And I understand that the waiver that everybody who got on board this thing signed actually included, you may die doing this. Are you OK with that? What I question a little bit is how informed that consent was because I question slightly how deep the engineering knowledge of all of the people who signed that waiver, and lots of people have been down on this thing before, it's not like this was a maiden voyage, how deep the engineering knowledge of all of the people who'd been aboard this craft actually was and how much they understood the risks that they were taking. I would draw a parallel with the Apollo program. One of the key moments of the Apollo program, uh, the point where everyone at NASA took a step back and said, OK, hang on a sec, just, let's just hang on a second here, was the Apollo 1 fire. Because I've often spoken, when I've spoken about the Apollo program, I've often spoken about how the, the gung-ho attitude that NASA had at the time would not be permitted today. And just occasionally I've lamented the fact that NASA is, in these modern times, so risk-averse. And at the beginning of the Apollo programme, they were even more gung-ho. And it was all about beating the Soviets. It was all about getting everything done as quickly as possible. And that meant that they did take shortcuts and they didn't think about all of the risks. As a result, they did a test of the command module for Apollo, in which the module was filled with oxygen. The thinking was that if we just have the astronauts breathe pure oxygen, that's lighter to carry than Earth-style air with you know its mix of oxygen, nitrogen, all the other things that are in there. As a result, when there was an electrical short, the fire that resulted, instead of just flashing and fizzling out, the fire engulfed the interior of the Apollo 1 capsule 
This is all on the ground. This is a, a ground test. It wasn't even designated Apollo 1 at the time. That was done afterwards as a tribute to the three astronauts who were inside that capsule when the fire hit. They didn't stand a chance. There was no way they were getting out. And uh, Virgil Gus Grissom, who of course had been a Mercury pilot, uh, Edward H. White and Roger B. Chaffee all lost their lives in the Apollo 1 disaster. And that was something that made NASA take a, take a step back and just say, OK, let's just think about this for a second. We do need to take risks, but some risks probably aren't worth it. And we need to be a little bit more careful. Now, they did still, through the rest of the Apollo program, very much fly by the seat of their pants. The first time an Apollo stack, you know, the, the service module, the command module, launched on top of a Saturn V rocket. The very first time that happened, it did so with a crew that went round the moon and back. That was Apollo 8. Now, they didn't muck about. They were still taking huge risks, but they were calculated risks. And they were risks that it was judged, you know what, the possibility of success at least equals the possibility of failure. Buzz Aldrin, famously, before he flew, was asked by a family member, um, what do you reckon your chances are of coming back alive from this? And he looked him in the eye and said, I don't know, about 50-50. So it's not like they weren't taking risks with Apollo, but they weren't taking risks they didn't need to take. And from what I've read so far, and there's no way anyone who's outside of the Ocean Gate company has enough knowledge right now to make any kind of declaration, and I certainly can't. I'm in no way a structural engineer. I do wonder if they were taking risks they didn't need to take. They had been warned by people who were not the man, who were not the authorities, but people who were fellow travellers on the road of exploration. They had been warned that that submersible was probably not safe. And I'm for now going to leave that there because I cannot speak with any kind of sense or authority on this subject yet. I am going to do a lot more research and it's probably going to come up in a couple of months as a kind of special edition thing because uh, I am fascinated by the questions that the Titan disaster raises. And at that point, we might also look into some of the ethics and some of the politics that have surrounded this story. And with that, we will move on to other aspects of geeky news and the big news this week. The thing that really seems to have bent an awful lot of people out of shape and has them wailing and gnashing their teeth and crying that woe is very much them is the announcement that many, if not most, if not all, of the major studios will not be attending the San Diego Comic-Con this year. Yeah, that long silence is me not caring. But why do people care? Well, the SDCC is a really, really odd beast. It's been around for a long time. It is the oldest comic convention that anyone would recognise as such. It's been going since the 60s. It's got a special place in the hearts of all of us who have any connection with all of this geeky nonsense. It's, it's my ultimate pilgrimage destination, I suppose. I've never been. I probably never will go. I've always wanted to. And it's also, it's the thing that people use as a barometer. So 
you know, for as long as I can remember, I've been knocking around comics now for 35 years. And for as long as I can remember, Comic-Con, San Diego, has always been the place to go. It's the place where the stars were. It's the place where everybody who was anybody was going to be there reliably every single year. And it's also been the place for at least as long as I can remember that everyone's been complaining isn't as good as it used to be. For as long as I can remember, people have been saying, oh, it's getting too commercial. It's all about money now. There's not enough comics there. And yeah, can't argue with any of that. I often kind of criticise Comic-Cons in the UK for not being Comic-Cons. Uh, they're geek fests, they're geek events. And all, you know, all power to them. I've got no problem with you know, sort of going and meeting stormtroopers and whatnot. But Comic-Cons are very rarely these days about actual comics. They're about stuff that's comics adjacent. They're about comic book movies. They're about, you know, come and meet the stars of Guardians of the Galaxy. Or if it's a smaller comic convention, come and meet this guy who was third Silurian from the right in that episode of Doctor Who. And, you know, all well and good and all fine and dandy, but that ain't comics. But somehow the word Comic-Con is attached to all of these things, although not loudly because San Diego will sue you because they've trademarked it. And San Diego started that. And it probably got really big uh, about 25 years ago in the run-up to Lord of the Rings when the movie studios really started to push things at Comic-Con. They recognised that that was where the nerds were. And so as that kind of geeky content became mainstream, Comic-Con, San Diego, was the big event they all went to to promote this stuff. And so Hall H became this legendary place where you would announce your next project to literally thousands of completely hyped up fans. And that's going away this year. It's the writer's strike again, really. Uh, it's very difficult for a studio to announce a project and you know, do the whole H thing where you get the director out and you bring out their star and you, 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 you have people sort of posing and doing you know, sort of moves from their signature character. It's very difficult to do that if you're not entirely sure the thing's going to happen because all the people who were writing it have suddenly walked off set and associated trades like the Teamsters are not crossing picket lines. And so things are simply not getting made. How are you announcing anything? You can't say, oh, this film's coming out in 2025 if you might not get to start shooting it until mid-2024. So of course they're not going to Hall H. And, you know, the usual suspects are already, oh, this is, you know, the the death of comics. It's the death of blockbusters. It's superhero fatigue. It's it's the unreasonable demands of the woke unions. It's all of these cries have gone up. You know what? San Diego will survive. Next year, I am going to lay reasonable money that next July, July 2024, the San Diego Comic Con will happen. July 2025, 2026. Yep, the San Diego Comic Con will happen. Will it be the same? Yeah, probably. The writer strike will end. The SAG strike will end. And things will get back to normal. And the worst thing that could possibly happen is that they don't. And San Diego Comic Con becomes about comics again. And I, personally, would not see that as a bad thing. 
Every so often, I am reminded by an event like this that people have been telling me that comics are dead since I started reading comics 35 years ago. Good Lord. Possibly slightly more than 35 years ago. Let's not say that too loud. So will it make San Diego less fun for some of the people that were planning to go to San Diego this year? Yeah, it will. Sucks to be them. Does it make any actual difference that Marvel Studios and Disney Plus and Lucasfilm, uh, like they're all different companies, are not going to be at San Diego this year? Not really. But since we are on a downer, let's talk a little bit about some news that's out this week that is emphasising a symptom of the current issues that have been raised by the writer's strike and who gets paid for what and how we work out residuals and all of that stuff. And that's the way that stuff is starting to disappear off streamers, because apparently it's easier to not make any money off your content than it is to make money off your content, but then have to give some of that money away. Mentioned over the last couple of weeks, you know, how things are disappearing off Disney Plus. Willow would be the obvious example of that, where they made a show. They had it up there on Disney Plus for about six months and then it just went away. And all of those people's hard work just vanished into the ether. You can't actually get Willow anywhere now. It was announced this week that Star Trek Prodigy is going to be disappearing off Paramount Plus, which is to say the next season is cancelled. It's not happening. And they're going to take season one off Paramount Plus. What on earth for? They've made it. They've paid for it. It's actually cost them money. Surely. Surely to goodness. You need to have it. And, and to dis- make it disappear of Paramount Plus, of all places, Paramount is the home of Star Trek. They make the wretched show. If there was going to be one place where you could get all of Star Trek, surely Paramount Plus would be the place. Apparently not in the judgment of the people in charge at Paramount Plus. The same thing is happening with DC Superhero Girls. Um, that is now no longer purchasable through Amazon Prime, iTunes or YouTube. And just think about that for a second. Not not available, not streaming for free. You actually can't buy it through Amazon Prime, iTunes and YouTube. Is still or Season one is still on Netflix. And if you've got young people in your life who you think would benefit from watching DC Superhero Girls, and that's all of them, and you have Netflix, make sure you watch it before it disappears from there too, because it looks as though all of this stuff is going away. And that's a problem, I think. That really is a problem. I don't know what the solution is, but I think we're going to watch this not with interest, but with increasing dismay. Um, Maybe, maybe a resolution of the writer's strike and the SAG issues will make this go away. I hope so. Uh, Well, as I say, we're going to watch this uh, quite closely because it could become a real thing. In the meantime, if you were wondering whether it was worth buying DVDs and Blu-rays, oh, yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, Finally, in the news, uh, we have um, just a little pause to mark the passing of the actor Julian Sands. He went missing as you may remember, in January. And his body has now been identified. He'd gone off on a hike. Uh, He'd gone missing. There was a huge search for him. Uh, His remains have now been found. And 
I just want to pause for a second and remember the work that Julian Sands did in our little corner of creativity. I first became aware of him in the movie Warlock, which I absolutely adored. I think it was the first time I became aware of Richard E. Grant as well. Uh, and he, he played the villain. He played the warlock. And he was great. He was full of charisma and menace. And he's been in a bunch of other stuff. Uh, he was in Smallville. Uh, he was in the horror film Gothic. Um, he was in Naked Lunch. He was in Gotham. So, you know, he's, he's done his time in the geekosphere. But he also works in some fairly high profile, high quality stuff. You know, he was in a room with a view, for goodness sake. He was also a local lad. He's from Otley in West Yorkshire. And he always struck me as a really interesting guy. Just, you know, quite apart from his professional work. I never met him, uh, but I do know somebody who did. And that story in which uh, my friend who lived in um, Hebden Bridge met him in a pub in which he was sort of spending the evening before intending to tramp out onto the moors, sleep rough that night and continue a trek uh, across the sort of Yorkshire, West Yorkshire moorscape. And so she took him home and introduced him to her boyfriend and let him crash on her couch that night so i wasn't actually that surprised when i heard that you know he'd gone on a hike in the the mountains in california and gone missing that seems to have been his real passion getting out there and really engaging with the natural world in a, a fairly uncontrolled way and in that sense i guess he seems to have finally died doing what he loved and there are no good ways to go but i guess that's one of the better ones he leaves a legacy he leaves a huge body of work behind he was never a major star he was never that a-lister that he could have been he had the talent it clearly just wasn't his focus it wasn't what he wanted to do but the fact that he wasn't really ever the lead in most of the things he was in but that he stood out so much tells you a lot about the talent and ability of this remarkable man. So, yeah, may the road rise up to meet his feet. And I guess that's our cue to talk about something a little bit more positive. So, we need to review the first two episodes of Star Trek Strange New Worlds Season 2. And it's an interesting contrast. We'll start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start, apparently, with Episode 1, The Broken Circle. Now, this is a fun episode. I want to say that right up front. As a one-off episode of Star Trek, it's... Really, really stupid fun. In that 
It is really stupid. As a plot, this makes almost precisely no sense. But as an episode of Star Trek, it's fine. It's one of the big, dumb, fun episodes where we get a bit of characterization. We maybe introduce a new character. Don't think too hard about the plot. Of course, it doesn't make sense. It's Star Trek. Don't worry about it. And that's fine. Which makes it an eccentric choice for the season opener. What makes it more of an eccentric choice is, as far as I can see, the existence of Strange New Worlds is basically down to the charisma of Anson Mount as Captain Christopher Pike. It was his performance, more than anything, I think, that led to people going, oh, what, what? I'm not sure about this Discovery thing, but I'd watch a show about that Enterprise with that captain. Well, cry me a river, Ransom Mount fans, because he ain't in this episode, except for a very brief little bit at the beginning, where he has a conversation with number one. <laughs> ah, sorry, Reggie from the future here, just dropping in before past me drops any spoilers, because I haven't sounded the spoiler horn or given an appropriate warning. So, take a, a tip from a man from the future. There are spoilers coming up. I know. I remember making them. So, here's the horn. <laughs> Spoilers! Spoilers! And now you've been warned. Spoilers coming up for episodes one and two of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. You have now been warned, and I return you back to your present timeline. As a result of last season's events, is currently in jail because she is genetically modified and she's not allowed to be. And so she is in jail awaiting trial and she needs a lawyer. And whoever it is that she's been calling to be her lawyer won't return her calls. So Tim Pike says, well, I'll go and speak to her face to face then. And he leaves the Enterprise, which is, to be fair, in Space Dock, in the capable hands of Mr. Spock. Spock is clearly nervous about being left in command of the Enterprise. And Pike says... Don't worry, you're not even going to have to leave Space Dock. I'll be back in three days. And goes. And of course, if you've seen any episode of, well, anything, actually, ever, you instantly know that, yeah, they're going to be leaving Space Dock. Stuff's going to go down. And stuff indeed does go down. Because while the Enterprise is being inspected by the Bureau of Inspectors or something, there's a whole bunch of people on the Enterprise that they're not, are not usually there checking it out. I, 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 they did say why in the episode. It doesn't matter. They're a plot device. It's fine. Anyway, while they're, they're being inspected, Uhura picks up a distress call from Lieutenant, sorry, Lieutenant, they're American, Lieutenant Noonan Singh, who, again, during the events of season one, left the Enterprise to go and take an orphan home, basically, was the thing. The message basically says... Enterprise needed, come at once. So Uhura takes this message to Spock, who takes it to the Admiral, who says, are you kidding me? So it turns out that Noonan Singh is on a dilithium crystal mining planet, which has shared sovereignty between the Klingon and Federation empires. And at the moment, it's under Klingon jurisdiction. Jurisdiction will not rotate back round to the Federation for three months. And... Since the Admiral does not want to provoke another war, no Starfleet vessel is going anywhere near that place and for three months until the Federation is back in control. So Spock goes back to his crew and says, look, I can't ask any of you to do this, but um, we're still in the ship. 
So they come up with a plan to fake a warp core accident, uh, which would get all the inspectors off the ship. And then the bridge crew, who are the only skeleton crew left on board, could take the Enterprise, do the thing, come back, face the music. They do that, aided by one of the inspectors, about whom more later they go to the place. They discover there's a plot to restart a war. Uh, a collection of Klingons and former Starfleet officers have a conspiracy. They want to provoke another war because when the war was on, dilithium prices were really high. They were making a fortune. Now there's peace. They're not making a fortune. They like money. They've built or found, it's never really made clear, a Federation starship. They're going to launch that Federation starship during the Klingon sovereignty period of this little planet. Uh, fire on a Klingon ship. Instant war. Bob's your dog. All done. The plucky Enterprise crew thwarts this plot. Peace is, is maintained. Everyone's a hero. Spock gets let off. End episode. That's basically the story. There's a lot more to it than that, actually, but that's basically the story, and it's stupid. The question is whether I care. There are some really nice story beats and a nice exploration of the relationship between Spock, played by uh, Ethan Peck, yes, grandson of Gregory Peck, and Nurse Chapel, played by Jess Bush. Now, I need to say just right out the, the, the outset, um, I don't think I thought a single godly thought about Nurse Chapel during this whole episode. Um, I may have found her quite distracting. This is on me. However, uh, I am understanding why Spock is behaving so unvulcan like around her. That's all I'm saying. And this is a nice flip, actually, because in the original series, it was the 60s. It was pretty revolutionary to have women on board uh, a military vessel anyway. And Nurse Chapel in the original series had a kind of infatuation with Spock. And the joke at the time was that, ha ha ha, silly woman, Spock cannot return your affection because he's a Vulcan and has no emotions. Ha <laughs> ha. And, you know, hijinks may have occasionally ensued much of the emotional distress of Nurse Chapel. Here, we have it from the other side. There's clearly an attraction. Nurse Chapel is clearly attracted to Spock in this version of the show. But we're seeing much more of Spock's conflict, Spock's battle with his emotions. Now, this will come to a head at the end of the episode, when Spock will have to make a decision which could result in the death of Nurse Chapel. But when you consider that we are dealing with a character who famously has no emotions, they really lean in to the emotions that he absolutely has. And there's a bunch of other silliness. Um... Dr. Mbenga and Nurse Chapel find themselves on the fake Starfleet starship and have to fight a whole bunch of rogue Klingons. And so Mbenga, from nowhere, produces this syringe of green stuff, which apparently gives you superpowers. Nurse Chapel makes a comment of it. Do you ever not carry it? And he says, no. And there's been some other banter about, you know, how they've served in dangerous places and stuff. But it, it seems to come from nowhere, which is odd. And then they do finally, because like the thing that nearly causes the death of the chapel is the destruction of the ship, because they have to destroy the fake Federation starship before it attacks a Klingon ship. Otherwise, war. And unfortunately, Nurse Chapel and Dr. Mbenga are stuck on the fake ship without EVA suits. But they do find a chest plate from an EVA suit 
and a helmet. And the helmet has a beacon that will activate when it hits space, which will attract the attention of the Enterprise. And the breastplate has motion thingamajig so they can get away from an exploding ship. So they blow themselves out of an airlock just before the Enterprise destroys the ship. And they're then beamed aboard the Enterprise and saved after a bit of you know emotional shenanigans. And I've seen a lot of stuff online, a lot of reviews that have said, oh, God, this is ridiculous. They should explode. And uh, I'm really sick of that error that people make. As I said in last week's show, if you are launched out into space without a spacesuit, the difference between the pressure inside you and the pressure outside you is one atmosphere. Your body can cope with that pressure differential. I mean, you'll fart a lot and you'll exhale a lot. And yeah, your actual problem is going to be the fact that all the liquids in your body start to boil because you're in a vacuum. But you can actually survive in a vacuum, vacuum for a short amount of time, which is what they do. So actually, scientifically accurate. I mean, you probably wouldn't look the way these people look when they're being back aboard. But nevertheless, scientifically fair enough. All the nonsense they pull in this episode, if that's your problem, wow. OK, so that's episode one. Lots of other stuff happened. I don't think I need to go into it. I've talked about it long enough as it is. Um, it's an action-packed, fun, stupid episode, which if it was in the middle of the series, I would probably have given oh, four and a half stars out of five because it's at the beginning gets three because where the hell's Captain Pike in the first episode of his show? Because let's not be kidding ourselves. It is his show. And yeah, no, it's, it's not a great series opener. One last thing about episode one of season two. Obviously, between the completion of season one and the beginning of season two, Star Trek lost one of its luminaries. The great, great dancer and actor Nichelle Nichols, who was the original Lieutenant Uhura. A woman who was a genuine trailblazer in so many ways. And who really was at the heart of Star Trek, the original series. It's a small thing, maybe even a silly thing, but I like that they didn't feel able to let that pass unremarked. And so there was just a little caption at the end of the show that dedicated the episode to Nichelle. And I think there is something about the way they used her first name rather than saying a in memory of Nichelle Nichols or anything like that, that made it feel more family. And again, it's a weird thing, but increasingly Star Trek is about family. So I like that they did that. I like that they couldn't let it pass unremarked. And I guess I can't let that pass unremarked either. So hailing frequencies always open. On to episode two, which is so much better. This might be one of the best episodes of Star Trek I have ever seen. And I do mean episodes of Star Trek, not of this show, but of Star Trek itself. And do you know what? I've seen all of them. There's a little bit of foldy roll about Pike trying to persuade this amazing lawyer to represent number one and her not wanting to, but then agreeing to. And that is a waste of five, maybe 10 minutes at the beginning of the show. No, what this really is is a courtroom drama, which is used as a way of examining not just what Starfleet is to the modern audience, but also what loyalty is and what the purpose of law 
is. Now, number one is on trial because she hid the fact that she was genetically modified from Starfleet. Starfleet has rules that say you cannot be a Starfleet citizen and be permanently genetically modified. I suspect the word permanently was dropped into this script after they realised that in episode one of season one, three members of the crew genetically modified themselves, but temporarily. So I suspect the permanent thing was dropped in later, but you can't do it. Now, she is genetically modified because her people treat genetic, genetic modification as a cultural thing. It's a rite of passage. It's a thing that you do before your children are even born. You give them genetic modifications. What we have is a very, very tense courtroom drama in which number one's lawyer slowly builds a case. You don't even realise she's doing it. It looks at several points like she's really stuffing things up. Uh, she gets an admiral to admit that he does not always follow the prime directive, or at least he twists the prime directive occasionally and occasionally kind of works around it in order to save lives. There's a whole thing about how number one gets to explain that being part of Starfleet was all she ever wanted to do because it, she needed to be there. She needed there to be there to be safe. And that the life that she was leaving behind was one of peril. And you get the connection between number one and her crew. And the fact that the Enterprise crew is, in fact, a family. It's beautifully, subtly, cleverly done. And I loved every instant of it. And that's all I'm saying about the trial, because it's so good. I Even having sounded the spoiler horn, I cannot spoiler this for you. You have to go and watch it. I am not even telling you how it ends. We'll make a couple of notes about some other stuff. First of all, Pike's back, obviously, and no mention at all of what Spock's been up to while Pike was gone. Not even a, you stole my starship, Spock, conversation. I don't know whether they filmed one, I don't know whether they wrote one, but it's certainly not in the episode. You would have thought somebody would say something, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Really? He stole a starship. Not even just a starship, the flagship of the Federation itself. Surely it would be mentioned. It isn't at all. Now that makes me wonder if the Pike Free episode one of this season wasn't actually intended to be episode one. And that would make a deal of sense to me. So, you know, there's that. I, I do wonder. But then there are some beautiful, beautiful little character moments. There's a moment when Lieutenant Noonan Singh, Chief of Security, needs to find out who it was that turned number one in. And so she goes to Uhura and says, I need all the personal logs. And Uhura says, no, you can't have them. That's not how we do that. Personal logs are sealed and you need you need an admiral to authorise releasing them. I'm not doing it. And Noonan Singh tries to pull rank and tries to use the fact that she is kind of Uhura's mentor. And Uhura said, no, precisely because of that. I don't think that's what number one would want you to do, to, to break the rules in that way. And it's not what I want for you, my mentor, either. So I am not doing it. We need to find another way. And that was, that was great strength 
of character from Uhura, which, you know, if you've seen the, the, the original series, you will understand what a powerful character Uhura actually was. So I, I liked to see that. And then there's a wonderful moment where Lieutenant Ortega, brilliantly played as ever by Melissa Navier, is sitting with Dr. Mbanga and she's watching Spock sitting in the commissary with the Vulcan Admiral who is prosecuting number one. And she's quite, oh, there's Spock with his Vulcan bro, you know, no loyalty kind of thing. And Mbenga, who has worked and studied Vulcans, kind of says, nah, do you not see the tension? Those two Vulcans do not get on. And these two are just sitting, staring at each other, basically. And then Spock gets up and leaves and he sees Ortega looking at him and comes over and says, I'm sorry you had to see that outburst. And goes on to say that, you know, of all the people who've ever worked with his father, that admiral is the person he hates the most. And it was just a, such a nice, edic character beat in an otherwise serious show. It did actually bring me to bring to mind um, Captain Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is perhaps a little unfortunate. But then again, I like Captain Holt and I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine, so maybe not. But if we're giving stars, this episode, Ad Astra Per Aspera, which translates, according to Starfleet Latin at least, as to the stars through adversity, which is not quite what I thought it meant, but okay. This is six out of five stars. This is peak, peak thoughtful Star Trek. It's not peak nostalgia Trek. It's not peak action Trek. This is peak. Trek. This is Star Trek looking at itself and saying, what is the message we're trying to give here? And the message we're trying to give here is everyone's worthy. Everyone matters. Nobody should be separated or othered by their culture or their appearance or their genetic makeup or however they identify. They were very careful, actually to talk about people being who they are rather than how they identify. But nevertheless, I think it's fairly clear that that's what they were talking about. This was proper Trek. This was Trek taking concepts that are controversial in the modern day, moving them into a futuristic setting and saying, yeah, we're going to deal with that concept and pretend we're not. And you can make your own judgments. It wasn't preachy. It was just solid Trek, and I am so here for it. Now, there are a couple of things I've missed out. Uh, they got a new chief engineer in episode one of this season uh, who is, well, really odd, and I'm going to talk about her later in, a, in another review when her character reappears because there's a lot to say about her, and I don't really have time now. We've been talking for 20 minutes already. There is a lot to contemplate about the relationship and the history between Nurse Chapel and Dr. Mbenga. They've clearly seen some stuff, and I'm intrigued to know more. And we need to talk about Klingons and how they suddenly look like Klingons again, when in Discovery they did not look like Klingons. So, yeah, there's that. But ultimately, all of that is perhaps a subject for another time. For now, it's time to boldly go onto something else.
Okay, and before we move on to other things, let's just stick with TV for a moment. I genuinely can't remember whether I talked about Secret Invasion last week or not. I suppose I could go back and listen to the the episode, but honestly, I spend enough time listening to the sound of my own voice. I'm clearly not going to do that. But I know I did say on social media that I was not going to be talking about the abomination that is Secret Invasion. And I've had a couple of people reach out and ask, why, what's wrong with it? And, well, the honest answer is, as a show, I have no idea because I haven't watched it. The reason I haven't watched it is twofold. The first is that in spite of myself, I did actually try. And I found that about five or ten minutes into episode one, I was checking my phone. It hadn't even beeped. And that to me says, this show is not holding your interest, Reggie. You probably need to go and do something more important. And given that I am not currently overblessed with an abundance of time, I did exactly that. Now, I should note that I've had that reaction to several Marvel shows, which turned out to be amazing. Uh, I would list Loki and The Falcon and the Winter Soldier as just two of the shows that did not grasp, grab me immediately and did take me a little while to get into, but which I in the end, found completely compelling. I have no doubt, given the quality of the rest of the stuff that Marvel churns out, that Secret Invasion would do this too. But I'm not going to give it the chance. Why am I being so closed-minded about this? Well, it's simple, really. They've annoyed me. And they've annoyed me because their opening credits have been made by AI. Now, that would be annoying enough. I think Regular listeners know how I feel about the use of AI in contexts like this. My objection is compounded by the fact that Disney have defended their decision to use AI in a couple of ways. First of all, they've tried to justify themselves by bringing a bunch of artists' names into the credits. Now, these people may or may not have been involved artistically in the production of the opening titles. And, you know, whatever role they've played, I'm glad they're getting credit. But do you know what names aren't in the opening credits? The names of all the artists that that AI system has been trained on, whose work has been stolen and plagiarised by Disney in order to produce the AI opening titles. And for me, that's kind of a red line. What makes it even worse is that they've further gone on to try and justify this decision by claiming it's an artistic choice and that the use of AI and the, the results of that AI involvement somehow symbolise the nature of the scrolls or something. And really, come on. Come on, seriously, do not play a player. I am very good at grifting. I am very good at coming up with a line of nonsense that will justify almost anything. And even I would not stoop that low. And I can certainly see when somebody else is doing it. So pull the other one, Disney. It's got bells on. And finally, and in many ways, the most unforgivable part of all of this is, have you seen the opening credits to Secret Invasion? They are awful. So not only are they building this animated sequence on uncredited work by artists who are not getting paid? But it's bad. 
It's actually just not good. I could almost forgive them if they had given it a go. Let's just assume for one second. Let's just accept that they're ridiculous. Oh, yeah, no, because, like, it totally, like, symbolizes, like, the duplicity of the scroll and that. Let's just accept that at face value. It's nonsense, but let's pretend it isn't. I could have respect for that if they'd done that with that mindset and for that reason and then looked at it and said, yeah, but this is substandard, isn't it? We need to get, yeah, we need to get some pros in. Yeah, can, can you get the design department on the line? Because we need them to fix this because this looks terrible. But they didn't do that. And if I can use a teaching analogy, you know, when you have really talented, actually, look, if you're not a teacher, you don't know this. But again, take my word for it. Sometimes you'll have really, really talented kids in your class and they are more than capable of coasting and getting pretty good results because they're just good at it. Every teacher has had several students who were like this. And as a teacher, they are the most frustrating kids to teach because you know they could do better and you can keep telling them they could do better. And they can look at you and shrug and say, yeah, but I got an A. You gave me an A. What more do you want? To which the answer is, I want your best. I want you to do good work, not just because you can you know, complete your homework and get it handed in on time. I want you to actually want more than that. I want you to value what you do. I want you to take pride in your work. I want you to, to value me as an audience enough to give me the best, not just what's adequate, but your best shot at this. And the opening titles of Secret Invasion are not anybody's best shot at anything. They do not respect me as an audience and say, yes, your time is worth something. We will give you something worth watching to spend your time on. It does not do that. And more than that, it does not respect itself. It does not say, yeah, this is a show that we want to be proud of. This is something that we value. What it says is, yeah, we can just churn this out and people will be okay with it. And the thing I find most troubling, I might even go so far as to use the O word and say the thing I find most offensive about this is that they seem to be right. There has been some pushback against this use of AI from the artistic community. But generally speaking, the response of fans has been, yeah, whatever. And I want you to be more critical than that, frankly. So I don't just want Disney to do better. I want you to do better too. Here endeth the boring preachy part. And we will very quickly move on to a piece of news which has broken since I started recording this and since I recorded the newsy bit at the beginning. Since James Gunn took over running the DC cinematic universe stuff, there has been much speculation about who will be James Gunn's Superman. Obviously, a lot of people wanted it to be Henry Cavill, and of course they did, because he is great in that role. I, I, I do not like the movies in which he has played Superman, but my issue is not with the way he plays Superman. I think he's a great Superman, and I would have loved to see Henry Cavill continue in the role. Now, he's not going to do that, at least for now. 
actually, I'm kind of encouraged that we might now see Cavill in the future in the role of Superman because James Gunn has cast his Superman and his Lois Lane. Now, since neither of them are Henry Cavill, why does that make me hopeful that we'll see Cavill again in the role? Well, funny you should ask. We'll come back to that because he has in fact cast David Coronsweat and Rachel Brosnahan as Clark Kent stroke Superman and Lois Lane, respectively. Why does that make me hopeful? Well, basically, lots of names have been in the ring. Uh, there were six actors, I think, who were touted as front runners. And it is Corin Sweat and Brosnahan who have emerged victorious and who have actually landed the roles. And the reason that makes me think that we might perhaps in the future see Cavill reprising the role is that, my word, David Corinswet doesn't half look like a young Henry Cavill. I mean, he really does. So if they do some kind of, you know, sort of kingdom come older Superman movie in the future, and they well might, well, it would make sense, surely, to cast Cavill in that role, given that young Superman is being played by someone who looks like a young him. It's just a thought. I might be overthinking it, but nevertheless, that's the thing, surely. Anyway, they have now been cast. Now, this is where I kind of always find myself at a disadvantage because I'm old and I have no idea who these people are. I do not know who these... I've never, I don't think I've ever seen them. Uh, Current Sweat apparently... Uh, has been in the Ryan Murphy series The Politician, uh, and then he was in the Netflix series Hollywood, and he's been in HBO's We Own This City, and uh, the Apple series Lady in the Lake, and the Twister se sequel Twisters. And I haven't seen any of those. Now, apparently Brosnahan uh, is both an Emmy and Golden Globe winner uh, for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I have not seen. Uh, she then rose to prominence in House of Cards, which I have not seen. So, you know, I'm not clear on how brilliant they are, although I am now going to go and watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which has been on my list of things to watch for some time. Really, both are stepping into fairly big shoes. For me, and again, this is probably my age as much as anything else, although I do think that Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder are kind of definitive in the roles. Stepping into those shoes is difficult. I don't think anybody really has stepped into Christopher Reeve's shoes and managed to pull it off properly. Brandon Rouse kind of did. Henry Cavill might have done if he'd been given better material to work with. But I don't think anyone really has matched Kidder as Lois Lane. Or come anywhere near close to doing so. So I wish both of these actors well. In many ways, it is a poison chalice. There are a lot of people who will be looking for these two to fail. There are a lot of people who have been very vocal about how they want James Gunn to fail. And yeah, I don't understand that. And I, I don't think they'll succeed. But nevertheless, there is a lot of scrutiny. It's a 
it's a big thing to take on is Superman and Lois Lane. So good luck to them. I look forward to seeing the movie, which may well be out in what, 2025? So, you know, 18 months or so to wait, maybe a little longer. It might be 2026, you know, with the, the, the delays from the, the, the various strikes that are currently ongoing. So we'll see. We'll watch with interest. They look great. As somebody who can't comment on any work they've actually done, because I genuinely haven't seen any, they look the part. And that's at least a start. And so with that, we will move on because we're beginning to run out of time. And I do want to squeeze in a wonderful woman of science. And for this one, we are going all the way back to somebody who may not, technically speaking, have been real because we're going that far back. Uh, I am talking about Mary the Prophetess, also known as Mary or Maria the Jewess. Uh, also known as uh, Maria Hebrew or, or Maria the Hebrew or Maria the Copt. Uh, and she was a scientist, perhaps only in the loosest sense of the world, in, in, in that she is from the ancient world to the point that we don't know exactly when she lived. I could not find a source who could give me, oh, she was alive at this time. We know she was written about in the fourth century. Uh, by a guy called um, Zosimos of Panapolis, who wrote about her, as I say, in the 4th century, in what is the oldest surviving books of alchemy. And in this book, he describes several of Mary's experiments and instruments and describes her as one of the sages who lived in the past. Uh, she's also written of by George Sincellus, a Byzantine chronicler from the 8th century, who presented Mary as a teacher of Democritus, uh, who was around in Memphis and Egypt during the time of Pericles. If she is from so long ago that I'm not even certain she was real, and she was in any case an alchemist, which is not science, why am I including her as a wonderful woman of science? Well, because what she proves is that women were accepted as people who could and should work in science and who could produce research and learning that was worthy of study all the way back to the ancient world. And this individual is credited with the invention of a number of scientific instruments and techniques which are still used today. Uh, the tribikos uh, was a, a kind of, sort of tripod thing that was used to obtain substances purified by distillation. It is not known whether she invented it, but Zosimos credits the first description of the instrument to her. It is still used in chemistry labs. Um, Mary recommends, allegedly, that copper or bronze be used to make the tubes. Um, and it should be the thickness of a frying pan. And that the joints between the tubes and the steel head should be sealed with flour paste. So, yeah, these are instructions on how to build scientific instruments here. Um, the keratikas. That, no, the Keratakis, 
uh, is a device used to heat substances used in alchemy and used to collect vapours. It's an airtight container with a sheet of, co- sheet of copper upon its upper side. And when it's work- used properly, when it's working correctly, all its joints will form a tight vacuum. This kind of sealed containers were used in the hermetic arts and led to the term hermetically sealed, which you will come across today. And finally, if you have ever heard of a bain-marie or Mary's bath, which limits the maximum temperature of a container and its contents to the boiler point of a separate liquid, essentially a double boiler, and if you've ever done any kind of proper cooking at all, you have used a bain-marie. That's named after her. Because she, according to everybody else, according to people who are ancient to us, she invented it. Now, it astonished me because I had always assumed that the Mary of Mary's bath or the Marie of Ban Marie was the Virgin Mary. I, I thought it was a biblical reverence. And, you know, the, the, the fact that a Ban Marie stops something getting overheated and therefore causes something to be heated gently was a reference to the gentleness of the Virgin. Apparently not. Apparently, it's a reference to the woman that invented the idea. So, should you be doing some cooking and using a Ban Marie? Talk about Mary the Jewess. Talk about the fact that women have always been involved in science. And when people like the loathsome Burble Singh, who's been in the news again this week for believing stupid stuff, are presented as people who should be looked to in education, and when they tell you that girls don't do science, remember that they always have, and that they do, and that they can, and that women in science have always been fundamental to the increase of knowledge, and that the only people who ever told you they shouldn't be were men who wanted to steal their thunder. Oh my word, am I getting boring and preachy again? I probably am, aren't I? I should stop that. We are nearly out of time. Uh, just a very quick mention of the Geek Community Notice Board. Um, it's got some dates on it which I can't read from here. I am just going to point out that if you are in Harrogate and you are looking to go and visit our friends at Geek Retreat on Oxford Street, don't do it before lunchtime because they now open from 12pm. So don't be going there in the morning. They are not a good location for breakfast. But should you find yourself in Harrogate of an afternoon, they're a great place to go. Uh, I am going to mention that the Geek Pub Quiz is happening at Major Tom's and the Geek Movie Quiz is happening at the Everyman Cinema. I don't have the dates for the next ones immediately in front of me. Do check out their social medias and find out the Geek Pub Quiz is one of my favourite social events that I never go to because somehow I always seem to be busy when it's happening. But don't be like me. Don't miss out. Check out the Geek Pub Quiz. You will be assured of an excellent evening out. And there was so much else I wanted to talk to you about this week, but somehow there was not time. Maybe next week. Join us then when we will perhaps deign to talk about Secret Invasion. We will certainly be talking about Season 2, Episode 3 of Strange New Worlds, which will be a week old by then, so, you know, it should be fairly safe. We'll have another wonderful woman of science. We'll have some comics recommendations, which I haven't spoken about yet. Uh, We might have some Doctor Who news. They're also not at Hall H this year, but, you know, new stuff is being announced all the time. Very excited about the return of Mel. I guess tune in, same time, same place, to find out more. Until then, please be kind to yourself. Please be kind to everybody else and above all else. Whatever it is you do, 
stay safe and stay geeky.